Hey friends, welcome to the Permission to Be podcast. Before we get started with our conversation with Dr. Amy Kinney, I'd want to just take some space and maybe welcome anybody new who this might be their first episode that they're tuning into the podcast. My name is Tommy and I want to um, maybe make some connections um, and by the end of the time that I'm sharing, um, you'll be well oriented into um, who we are and how we're coming into the conversation today. And so these are, you know how you have conversations um, and then you reflect back on them and you, in hindsight, can see a theme developing. Well, these are just some disjointed and emerging thoughts from our last four conversations and a little preview of what's to come in our next few conversations. Um, And the way that I'm organizing these thoughts in particular um, helps me ground in the reason that I'm having these conversations to help me show up authentically um, in the world. And so I love being here on permission to be. Um, For me, it's really a beautiful opportunity to publicly not know. Um, We have some really beautiful conversations on here, but I think with a deep spirit of humility and curiosity, um, we love to dig into policy and societal contracts. We believe that like, we make the world better through imagination, reimagining what family could be like, community, work, our relationship to the earth. And in doing these things, I think we're finding healing. Um, And if healing's a difficult word for you, maybe improvement in material conditions, um, both individually and collectively. And so the hope is that you find something in these conversations that we have here on the podcast that can help guide you in the next best step in whatever your context might be. Whether that's in your spiritual communities, your local communities where you live, your workspaces, around the dinner table, or for yourself. And so if I was to contextualize the last four conversations that we had, it might flow under a series um, called Bodies and Humanity, where we discussed agency and dignity through the lens of decolonization with Constanza Eliana Chenea and embodiment with Dr. Hilary McBride. We got to the honor of listening to um, Lisa Sharon Harper share narrative with us, this ancient sacred practice of storytelling 
through her book, Fortune. And just as she shared so generously her history and story and how that intersects with her faith and how her body moves through the world. And also we got to talk with Dr. Christina Cleveland on identity and faith and liberation through a shifting lens of God and how those things interact. And now I think we're here in the next four conversations, which are grounding us in the story of now. And when I mean the story of now, um, I mean the continual um, movement of white supremacy, exploitation and devastation through capitalism, economic injustice, the injustice done to our bodies, and the way we have organized ourselves into systems. Right now, in a lot of people's mind, if you live in the United States of America, is um, our bodily autonomy. But that's probably on your mind even if you don't live in the United States of America because we're all connected and white supremacy isn't isolated and so our next few conversations are going to talk about the political and spiritual implications of the now and what the liberation of the body could look like practically, tangibly on the ground. And again, it's our hope that you will be able to take away some nuggets that will help you in your context. We're going to talk to people like Dr. Aubrey Hendricks as he has studied evangelical Christianity and um, is rise in political ranks as we look at how government is structured. We'll have an illuminating conversation with Andre Henry, my dear friend. And then we'll reveal our live conversation that we had with Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa and Anna Galladay as we talk about embodiment in politics explicitly as it relates to um, our democracy here in a U.S. context. But that is also a conversation that was influenced by a global worldview. So today, Dr. Amy Kinney is going to kick us off as we talk about disability justice. I am so excited because this conversation just really gave me pause in how I'm showing up in my relationships and caring for people. And I hope that it'll do the same for you. In this episode, there are maybe one or two longer pauses in between the conversation. I just want to invite you to notice during those moments what's coming up for you. If you are not subscribed to the Permission to Be newsletter, 
we would love to continue to build community with you. I know that's a conversation Olivia and Becca and I are having regularly about how can we engage and make this even more meaningful. Um, the conversations with our guests have been so life-giving and truly transformed me in how I live into the world. And I would love to continue to build on that with the people who listen to the podcast. So feel free to interact with us on social media, sign up for the newsletter. If you want to give financial support, you can join our Patreon community, which I get to host as patreon.com forward slash Tommy Allgood. And then, yeah, as we're growing, as we're continuing this journey with you, um, as things emerge, we're going to keep looking for ways to connect, ways to find, to take the next best step, ways to pause, ways to be. So glad you're here. See you on the other side. Hello and welcome to Permission to Be. Let's hit him with the remix. Oh, well, y'all got to change yes. that. Yes. What are we doing? Uh, we leave our f bombs in and. Let's tell some stories. As long as white people are bound, the people in power are bound. They're gonna keep us bound to the same thing that they're bound to. Out of, out of, the, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That I think out of the overflow of the spirit the body does. Challenge some narratives. Why, why is that the best that God could offer you? Mike made it very clear that he did not want to get any of these questions beforehand. So he is getting this question live, raw, for the very first time. This is, um, yeah. and I feel like art is the expression of the heart where uh, words fail. Oh my goodness, I have tears. Oh, y'all are killing it. Unfiltered. I feel like that's gotta sound strange. Permission to be. Uh, actually, my, my my literary agent, when we were talking about what book might I write, he was like, I mean, A Black Man with Hope is an interesting book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Permission to Be. We are honored to have with us Dr. Amy Kinney. She is a disabled scholar and a Shakespeare lecturer who hates Hamlet. Her work has been featured in Teen Vogue, The Mighty, and Roxanne Gay's The Audacity. But the biggest thing and the most important thing that you, well, one of the most important things you need to know is that this May, and hopefully you'll be hearing this conversation around the same time, but specifically May 17th, her brand new book titled My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice in the Church will be released. And y'all, I have spent the afternoon reading Amy's work in different articles and the way she writes is it will draw you in and it will make you sit up and pay attention and I just want to encourage you to make sure you go ahead. If we release this a little bit before pre-order her book, of course, local bookstores are always what we encourage, but you can go 
to the empire amazon and get it as well um <laughs> welcome well the honor is mine i'm so excited to be here and i can already tell that we're gonna have a lively and joyful conversation <laughs> we are oh. so glad thank you for joining us yeah oh, tommy you want to do our check-in yeah yeah so i'm just really enjoying that this season of the podcast is completely different we have always struggled to figure out what is the thing that how do we want to like bring in the conversation and like in seasons one and two it was never with any consistency but it was like who do you want to play you in your biopic oh yeah but you can answer that if you want to if something comes up you have more time to think about it but i let's be very human with each other and just how are you coming in we all share how are we coming into the space tonight and uh, does anybody want to go first? I'll go first. Um, I'm coming in, <laughs> honestly, a little punchy. Um, <laughs> it's been a busy week uh, and some stressful things, nothing dire, but a lot. And so I've coming in a, a punchy in like good way, like giggly and just kind of joyful and um, super excited just to be here with everybody. Um, that's not, sometimes I come in just kind of feeling like, okay, we can do this. But tonight I'm like, let's hang out. Let's, let's be with each other. So Olivia. Um, I'm coming in, in writer's mode. So I left one writing class coming into this podcast. And prior to that writing class, I was reading Amy's stuff. <laughs> and so, um, my writer's brain is just kind of kicking, um, firing on all cylinders, but that brings me joy. Writing is my great joy. So I feel joyful. Hmm. Um, Amy, did you want to go? Yeah, I think I'm coming in tingly um, with excitement and hope, which is sort of a dangerous feeling because sometimes that can lead to disappointment, but it can also mm. lead to, to change and to revolution. So mm. I think tingly is what I feel in my body. Mm. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. I especially love when someone like leads in with sensation. Um, I'm really trying to be attuned to that. Um, so I, I'm coming in. I, I think the, 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 sh today's been so, um, kind of a roller coaster of emotions between meetings um, but also like in conversations with friends. And so I'm holding both um, deep tensions in some ways, but also like a really fun day full of laughter. Um, and, but it, it, it's been going on for 10 hours now. So I'm a little also like feel my body, like kind of grounding in and winding down, um, which I'm excited. I'm excited for the the journey tonight of where this conversation is going to take us. And I'm really curious about why Hamlet gets the hate. <laughs> <laughs> I I think a better question is why wouldn't he? Ooh. He hates women. <laughs> He's mean to his mom. Come on. He spends the whole play 
droning on about his first world problems. It's so hard. You're a prince. Sorry, mate. No. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, I, I think that just gets us started, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's like, um, right on par for a lot of men today. <laughs> I was like, talk about United States white cis men. I mean, that just like... And that's exactly why the Academy likes Hamlet so much, right? Mm -hmm. Is he mirrors a lot of what is valued in the Academy, talking about things you have no knowledge of, um, you know, extending lots of bigotry and hatred and misogyny and ableism and racism towards other folks. So it's no wonder that Hamlet is a favorite, but I just have no space for him or for anyone who adores him so much. Wow. Wow. Mm. Mm. Okay. So you're, why don't, um, this is our first time getting to talk to each other. And this is maybe our audience's first time being able to interact with you, but why don't you just take up some space and introduce yourself, who you are, um, and whatever else you want to say. Wow, who I am, what a big question. Ooh. I, in this moment, am someone who is listening to the wisdom of my disabled body and has learned so much from my disabled body. I cherish her and think that she is a gift and not the villain narrative or the loss narrative or the sin narrative that so many people have given me. I am someone who cares deeply about the co-flourishing of my neighbors who are unhoused in my community. I live in an area that has of California that has both wealth and and with that obviously poverty and wealth inequity and I care so deeply about valuing our neighbors who are unhoused as image bearers and giving them the resources that they deserve and they're often forgotten and dismissed in conversations about church or equity or just being a neighbor. I believe deeply in my gut that God is love and that we are all divine and that together we get to witness the canvas of creation and the beautiful biodiversity of creation through witnessing how each of us bear God's image. tell us about what led to the decision to write this book why this book why now tell us about you know what was behind that what was behind that I didn't plan to write a book. I joined a writing group not thinking I was a writer, which in retrospect sounds like a silly thing to say, but I joined the writing group really just to process some of my own experiences as a disabled person in church. And I had a lot of 
spiritual abuse and religious trauma, as many disabled people do in church spaces. And I wanted a way to process that that wasn't shaming people or that wasn't, um, that would be listened to because so often it had been silenced or just dismissed in, in every church I've been in. And over the course of sharing bits of my story, the group, yourself included, Olivia, were just so encouraging and so welcoming of what I had to say. And I had never really experienced that before. That when I had shared... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Are you telling me that when we started this, you didn't consider yourself a writer? No, not at all. <laughs> I joined I mean, you the see group. This expression. You. I know that our, our audience cannot see this expression on my face. For somebody, um, I, I wrote with Amy every week for over a year, and her essay skills are so exceptional. So this shock is that it, it's just baffling to me that she didn't see herself that way. That's amazing. And so that continue, please continue. Wow. Yeah, I, I joined the group when a friend had sent it to me and said, this could be a great space for you to process some of your story and some of your trauma. And so it definitely was, but it was much more than that. And I think through the reflections of the group and the encouragement of the group that led to me sharing pieces of my story with broader audiences, and then that led to the book. And the book is really an invitation for people to rethink some of the assumptions they have about disability. In my experience, most people haven't given disability much thought. And when they have, it's through pity or shaming narratives. And so I wanted to really give an invitation to folks to rethink what they have heard and learned about disability and to demonstrate the ways that disability is a gain. I um, read your article, um, the the Huffington Post article about um, people grieving and pitying for you. And I just wanted to read a couple of sentences um, that just kind of leaped off the page and then just have you comment on that. Um, So you're talking about people Um, when you were diagnosed as a teenager and people grieving the future that you weren't going to have, things that you weren't even necessarily thinking about um, at that young age. And you said, there are enough injustices for disabled people in the U.S. right now without borrowing from tomorrow's griefs. Grieve for that. And then a few sentences down, you say, my wheelchair is the key to unlocking the floodgates of pity. And then you go on to, to list several things that about, I w- about which I was unaware that just really made me stand up and take notes. So could you kind of comment on that and unpack that and share what led to, um, like, what was the lead up to that and share with our audience some of the things that you talked about that are grief worthy that many people may not even know anything about? Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Grief is tricky and slippery because in the moment it can feel loving, but I think it is often a spiritual bypassing that situates the issue in an individual's pain or body, my body, instead of thinking about the systemic problems of ableism. And everyone wants to 
not everyone, a lot of people <laughs> who want to cry for me, want to pat me on the head like I'm a good dog. They want to tell me, especially when I was a kid, I would receive a lot of, you'll never walk down the aisle. <laughs> okay. I mean, I'm a child. I'm not really thinking about that. I'm thinking about reading and imagining new worlds and creating and playing and stuff, you know, or I would receive just these statements about the future of my life would be really hard as though just by virtue of being disabled, it would somehow be harder than a non-disabled person's. And in some ways that's true, but it then puts it back on me and my body mm -hmm. instead of saying, mm -hmm. let's change that. Let's change the parts of our society that are disabling. Let's change the parts that are ableist. Right now, disabled people in the United States don't have marriage equality. We don't have minimum wage protection. Many polling places are not accessible. We often, disabled people are underpaid or um, or live in poverty as a result of there being caps on how much money people can have when they receive disability. Mm. It takes longer to actually go through the paperwork process to receive disability than many people can actually survive. And so tens of thousands of people die waiting to even learn if they are approved for disability payments. And then of course, many are not. And maybe we should grieve for those things and not just grieve. We should change them. We should change them with our actions and our activism and our community work. Instead of crying over me using a wheelchair, let's change the fact that disabled people are often murdered by their caregivers and parents and loved ones because we're considered burdens. Mm. I so resonate with what you're saying in in that we don't fully grasp ableism in also the the disabled experience not that there's one like like you know like black people aren't a monolith disabled people aren't a monolith um just very like I I was a nurse through, I am a registered nurse and I was working at the bedside uh, through the pandemic. And I just hit this place of deep burnout. And, you know, they, the job kind of promises you that you have these benefits that you can use and, and they're labeled like short-term uh, disability, like benefits and whatnot. Um, and it was for my mental health at this point, I recognized I was not able to show up for my patients in a way that was fully honoring to their humanity. Um, and, and, uh, I think Dr. Lisa Rankin labels that like, as uh, I was experiencing, now I know have the language to say I was experiencing this moral injury, but the, to, to take time off, um, the amount of doctors that I would have had to see, um, the amount of appointments that I would have had to go through. And then on top of that, trying to navigate like life, get on medication for like my depression <laughs> at the time. And I'm like, why, why is it, why is it like this? Why can't we just say we need help 
and we get the help that we need, right? There's a there's um there's a statement of that we care, but in practice, when it boils down to it, our actions are not showing that we care. It's actually showing the opposite. It's showing that we're a unit of production and we have to, you know, you know, we value more bodies that can produce more under a, a, a capitalist construct. And so I love um, what you're talking about as you're both unpacking the depths of which, you know, because it, it's really easy for me also as a queer person who presents as male um, to go, oh, there's marriage equality in, in, but you're really thinking in these systemic terms. Um, Would you like to kind of like talk more about that? Yeah, I think capitalism is one of the huge problems because Mm -hmm. it says that the more that you produce, the more that you are worthy. And it sells us the lie that we are only worthy of rest when we have produced enough we don't earn our rest. We shouldn't have to perform our worth. Each of us are inherently worthy. And disabled people can't keep up in a capitalist system because we are viewed as drains on the system because we don't work enough or we um, we can't produce enough to prove our worthiness. Now, of course, the lie beneath that is that none of us can survive in a capitalist system. It's just that some of us can kind of fool ourselves for longer that we can. Amy, one of the things that you um, mentioned when you were speaking earlier, and it was also noted in your um, HuffPost article that I had never heard of, Disability Day of Mourning, March 1st, a day that memorializes disabled people killed by their parents or caregivers. The day is not just about remembering those who were murdered, but draws attention to the harmful ways this violence is often minimized. I gasped audibly when I read that. I did not know, I've never heard of Disability Day of Mourning, and I certainly did not know that there was a pattern or an issue or um, a trend of disabled people being murdered by their caregivers. I would just love to hear you say a little bit more about that or unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, even the fact that it isn't well known speaks to the ableism of the system, I think, because there's a type of erasure of whose story gets to be told and Mm -hmm. whose histories we get to know. And I experience the same thing whenever I talk about churches fighting against the ADA and churches don't have to follow the ADA still in this country. And the general response from folks is shock and almost as though they don't believe it. And not in a gaslighting sense that they're trying to say that doesn't exist, but just they can't believe people would be that mean to disabled people because they have been taught about disability through pity and they haven't really thought about how we've been segregated in so many ways from society or they haven't really thought about how maybe they don't know disability history as well as they would assume. Disability Day of Mourning is particularly tragic because, as you read just then, the way that non-disabled parents are described in the media is often with a lot of sympathy. 
And it's talked about that non-disabled parents who kill or caregivers or guardians who kill their disabled children are considered justified in some ways, or mercy is often used, mercy killing, or there's often a, a way, even just in the way the story is told, to suggest that, well, the disabled person took a lot of work, so we can kind of understand someone snapping. You know, it's told as though we are sympathizing with the the murderer because disabled people are a burden and a drain and a waste. Mm. Mm. I'm just so struck by, you know, we've, we've gone through collectively, uh, and I'm just noticing the ableness of what I was about to say, a pandemic, we're still in the midst of a global pandemic. (laughs) And, um, We've gone through a major global uprising that I think we haven't seen since the gay rights, civil rights era. And um, I earlier today I was sitting um, in a panel interview commemorating Marsha P. Johnson. And just I'm struck with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. says that that talks about being inextricably bound together, referencing liberation. I'm just struck by how inextricably bound the struggle is here to see and honor each other's humanity. Um, And one of the things that as I was reading some of your essays and articles today, one of the things that I was really struck by was this this tender but forceful call to start to focus on the person, the whole person, and not just in reducing the person to an illness or um, the thing that maybe happened to them. Um, and, and I don't really have necessarily a question out of that i'm really i'm really um as much as i'm wanting to maybe dialogue a little bit about this invitation into seeing each other's humanity tender but forceful i'll take it (laughs) (laughs) i think so often when people approach me my body becomes public property Mm. i am I'm an object, I'm a mascot, I'm a token, I am inspiration porn, and to be pitied. And all of those are centering someone else, and I become consumed, and only for the pleasure and purpose of their edification or their um, kind of desire, whatever whatever they want to make me out to be, I become. And... That's obviously unfair to me because I am so much more than any of those things. And I'm so much more than a diagnosis. I contain multitudes. But also it it is really harmful to the non-disabled person in that interaction who's doing that as well. Because it suggests that some people are disposable and it suggests that there's a hierarchy of humanity. Mm. 
there's no hierarchy. We are all bound together, bound to one another to use the phrase, Tommy, that you used because our thriving is dependent on one another. This myth of independence that we have here that says that one person can strive and work hard enough and produce enough to become wealthy and um, and kind of equip themselves with distancing themselves from all pain and suffering of the world. No, that's that's horrible. And that is only by way of violence and erasure of people more marginalized than that person. And I think something really important about disability wisdom is that it highlights interdependence and the ways that we are all dependent on one another for our survival, but also to create new worlds where we can all flourish instead of living in these toxic systems that we're a part of now. You mentioned at the outset, one area where this really intersects is housing justice. And and you're in California. So anytime I hear somebody go, I'm from California, I'm like, ain't no way and, and on God's green earth that I could ever afford to live in California. But I'm also thinking about like um the Charlotte where I live here, Charlotte, North Carolina, we've had, you know, is we're having kind of corporations come in and buy up property and drive the, the housing value up, which is increasing um, uh, the instance of, of people being unhoused and not having access to housing. So what are some in your work? What are you finding some tangible ways that we can start to show up in this interdependent way, especially as it's like housing justice. In there was a study done in the the county that I live in that gave us some numbers about how much we already pay, we being taxpayers, how much we already pay to keep people unhoused. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was something to the tune of we pay $100,000 per chronically unhoused person to keep them unhoused at this time. And that's, that connects everything from medical fees to, um, to city officials, to, you know, law enforcement interactions, to sanitation, all of the money that is spent basically on each individual who is currently unhoused in our County. And then if we were to give permanent supportive housing, it would only be about $56,000 per year per person who is unhoused. So we're paying about double to keep people unhoused per person per year right now. The only thing that really explains that is stigma and bigotry towards people experiencing homelessness. And so I think any ways that we can support permanent supportive housing initiatives in our communities are great. And that's a really broad view, but on the micro level, I think it looks like showing up and listening to the needs of people who are experiencing homelessness. So I'm involved in my community, a small group of us 
really practice this by going to the laundromat with about 30 to 40 of our unhoused neighbors, doing laundry together, eating pizza together, or going to the park and hanging out. And it's led by what they tell us their needs are. So they'll say, we need tampons, or we need tops, or we need bike repair kits, and that's what we bring. And there's so much mutual flourishing in that because we're not going there pitying them or thinking that we have answers and they need them or even handing out some sort of religious tracts or or forcing them to listen to some sort of religious ceremony before giving them support. No, we're showing love through clean clothes, full bellies, and a gentle listening ear. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So... You mentioned the religious tracks, and so I want to segue us a little bit um, (laughs) into your experience of the church, Big C Church, or individual church's role, um, your upcoming book, which may be released by the time we have this this conversation, our audience gets to hear it but is my body is not a prayer request. So I would love for you to dive into that just a little bit or a lot. (laughs) Bring it all. (laughs) The title is a clapback really (laughs) to people assuming that my body is a prayer request and coming up to me and praying for me to be cured telling me things like God told me to pray for you or the spirit led me to tell you that you're to be healed or what sin is preventing you from walking. People, so from the time I was 11 to the time I was 17 or so, every Sunday at church, pastors and elders would gather, lay hands on me, pray for me to be cured. And that really does something to a kid. Mm. Whoa. It gives Whoa. it gives you a large therapy bill as an adult. <laughs> wow. That's the it it's almost as if you the the um again, it's kind of the solidarity piece of that that I'm experiencing is it's almost like you went through this version of conversion therapy. And I'm just struck by how what I know about trauma, what I know about finding belonging, how that begins to restructure even the brain and how we perceive things. So do yeah. you, how would you like to share about that experience? Um, and and I just want I guess I also want to preface. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just want to say to the audience um, to be with your bodies as you know, we're, we're talking very openly about shame. We're talking, um, about, you know, you might, we might find ourselves, we will find ourselves somewhere in this conversation where we've perpetuated ableism. And the purpose of this conversation is not to come at an angle of judgment, but we can't begin to build anew until we address what the practices are that are causing the harm. Mm -hmm. And I think it's sitting with that discomfort, just like most of us who grew up in a supremacy culture at some level are racist, those of us who are able-bodied, because it's not about intention to harm, 
It's about the culture. What Amy, you talked about is the systems we live in, which is not an excuse, but it's an awareness we need to carry with us as an openness. Absolutely. And they're all mutually reinforcing. Ableism is really the idea that some bodies are better than others. And so that is connected to anti-Blackness. That's connected to queer phobia. That's connected to fat phobia. And that's why I think it's so important for us to think about, you can't be what, you know, wanting liberation in one area and not others. They're all interconnected. They all mutually enforce one another. And also recognizing the privilege and the um, and the experience that each of us bring with the complexity of our identities. Mm-hmm. So as a white disabled woman who is cishet, I have a lot of privilege and I have experienced a lot of ableism in the church. And I say that just as an invitation to think about how much the more for people who are are more multiply marginalized than I am as well. Mm. So the experience of being prayed for, so it was always, I'll back up. (laughs) I had that experience of being prayed for pretty much every Sunday at church. And there's so many power dynamics there. They were adults. I was a child. They were all men. I was a young girl. They were non-disabled, I was disabled. So there's a lot of different power differentials that I think often aren't taken into play. So I'm not sure that consent can even really be given when there's so much um, of a power distribution in that way. But even since then, I'm no longer 17. And since then, I have been prayed for dozens of times by people who I want to think are well-meaning and have just been led to believe that disability is bad or tragic or sinful. And so this looks like people approaching me at church or at Target or any really anywhere and saying, hi, I'm a Christian. I want to pray for you or God told me to pray for you. And I didn't do this as a child, but I now as an adult say, I'm good, thanks, or no, thank you. And often that's not enough to deter them. Often they they pray anyway, or I've been held down to be prayed for. I've had people put potions on me that they've made to cure me. And all of this is really rooted in an idea of disability as bad and sinful, yes, but also of this notion that my consent doesn't matter in these scenarios because if God tells you to do something in that kind of version of what's happening, if God tells you to do something, that somehow supersedes what any sinful, using air quotes there, what any sinful human could say. And so that matters more than the consent of a disabled girl or now disabled woman. Wow, the I'm just noticing a welling up as you articulate the experience of being physically held down. What a deep violation of your humanity and agency. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm so sorry that that is has been your 
experience in and um just that we have to do better we have to do better and yes. i'm just thinking um i didn't even know that earlier you had mentioned that churches fought uh, are fighting against the um americans with disability act in that they don't even you know, i'm it's connecting to me now that in in my place of uh that i call my spiritual home we're aware of areas of opportunity that we need to make, you know, the stage needs to be accessible. And that all sends a message, right? That sends a message of like, who is God speaking to or speaking through, right? Or who, who are we valuing um, in this regard? And so um, not to, I guess, get all into the, the details of the book, but what are specifically for people uh, who call themselves or identify with the Christian faith. Um, so much of your trauma has been rooted in that, um, what I'm hearing. Um, what is something that we need to do now in the context of 2022 to foster the solidarity? I think one of the most important things is to learn from disabled people I love the example of the stage being accessible because often it is assumed that, well, why would we have any disabled pastors or leaders or speakers? No, we lead. We have lots to teach. We have lots to share. We have gifts to share with the community and those are diverse. So really learning from disabled people and that can look like following disabled folks online on you know, on social media, listening to the disabled people in your own communities. And of course, that assumes that you are already friends with disabled mm -hmm. people. And that is sometimes unaware to people that they haven't really had very much experience with disability because churches are not required to be accessible because they fought against ADA and said we were too costly and it was um, infringing on religious freedom. So because of that, a lot of disabled people have been excluded from church. I've been in churches where there is no ramp. And when I ask for one, I'm told that's not stewarding tithe well. So just the idea of the space you're in needs to be accessible and accessible to all different types of disabilities. I use a wheelchair, but of course there's many disabilities. And then the practices need to be accessible. If you have people coming up and holding folks down to pray for them without their consent, that's not accessible. It's assault. The, <laughs> that's abuse. I'm like, that's it, abuse. It literally is. <laughs> it's assault. <laughs> so that's called assault. Um, if you, if your songs use ableist language, if you're constantly forcing folks to stand, and I'm not saying having an invitation where you can stand or you can move about, you know, as you feel led or as you're abled, I'm saying if you're forcing people, I've been in church spaces where I can't stand. And so I'm stared at in, in sections of the liturgies where uh, where we're told to stand or where we're invited to or where you're just excluded from the practices of communion or various things because you can't move to the section of the sanctuary that holds those elements. So thinking about accessibility as 
a an ethos, as a practice, as an ongoing negotiation and conversation that you're never arrived. You're never going to be fully accessible. Access needs change from time to time. And as you have the, the ebb and flow of different community members coming in, you're going to have to reassess those access needs and what it means to be accessible. And in my experiences, most churches just don't really want to do that work and nor are they legally required to. Hmm. I mean, they're tax write-off money. I mean, you know, they're not tax. They could take that money. I'm just saying. Yeah. Some studies estimate that the crypt tax, which is the additional amount that disabled folks pay each year just for being disabled on mobility aids, medical, um, you know, different types of accessibility because the world is not made for us. Some studies estimate that that's an extra ten to $30,000 per disabled person per year. So yeah, what would be great is if churches paid the crypt tax for disabled people. Wait a minute. But of course, yeah. No, go ahead. There's a tax, like on like when you purchase something, is it an additional tax or like on your tax forms? No, it's not on your tax forms. It's just the name that's given to the extra cost of being disabled. Well, it wouldn't surprise me either way. Exactly. Yes, that wouldn't surprise me either. But kind of like how the pink tax works, you know, how any any item you can have two raises and one can be marketed to um, one could be marketed to women and that yes. therefore costs yes. more. It's exactly gotcha. like that. Still yeah. ridiculous, still awful. Just Yes, yeah. absolutely. So just pointing out that churches could do a number of things with the money that they save being, um, being untaxed. And that could, of course, be one of them. But in order to do that, that would require a deep investment in disabled people. And unfortunately, most churches don't really have that. Mm. Oh my goodness. All of our churches need, there's so many Bible verses that you need to reread. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I'm very curious then, do you still like, identify? You've had so much trauma. Um, mm-hmm. And do you still identify uh, um, from within? the 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 christian tradition Mm. kind of what how has your spiritual journey gone alongside you throughout these years yeah i do because they don't get to take jesus and the they there is you know anyone who has done me or other people harm but also anyone who thinks that they own what christianity is And I think it's really important to me, although I have a lot of respect and space for people who land elsewhere, but it has been really important to me to reclaim some of the ableist practices and ideas that have been shoved onto me and reclaim what I think mutual flourishing actually looks like, which is that we all get to thrive and that disabled people are included in an accessible banquet and that it isn't that my body is not a defect or a prayer request, but that it is divine. Hmm.
Yes. Yes. I'm also just noticing, going back to the you, the example that you talked about, um, about kind of uh, having this relationship where you go to the laundromat and you're in fellowship with unhoused people. Um, it strikes me that that would take time to coordinate, to organize, to set up um, and follow through. And earlier we were talking about capitalism. And so <laughs> what I'm, I'm guessing, um, that's not going to be an easy thing to do to break that cycle or that rhythm of the glorification of busy um, to cultivate a new rhythm or way of being with um, each other. So, yeah. Yeah. What? <laughs> Let's talk about that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So what, what have you found in terms of what are people needing to hear in, in that regard as it relates to disrupting, divesting from the, the systems that glorify busy, that keep us disconnected and separated? Because I, you know, in any struggle that I've seen, it's, it takes time, it takes resource, it takes energy, it takes making it an intentional and priority. So what are, what are you, like, you're saying people have to get up and do something <laughs> or move what? and do something? <laughs> <laughs> I think we should all live by crip time, which is uh, this idea from... Ellen Samuels and Alison Kafer that is suggesting that time isn't linear and it doesn't move forward or incrementally, but that disabled people move at a different pace and in a different type of cycle. So some days I can get out of bed by myself and other days my husband helps me put on my socks. Some days I can you know, have several meetings and talk to wonderful people on a podcast and other days I can't do anything. And in both and all of those days, I'm no less worthy of care. I'm no less worthy of rest and of resources and of love. And I'm no less worthy of humanity and compassion. And of course we say that, and it's kind of in vogue now to talk about well-being and rest and self-care. And there's parts of that that I find to be just toxic positivity and kind of suggesting that you can, through your own individualism and through your own money often and your own privilege, you can somehow undo the harms of toxic systems and that's not what we're talking about with crypt time. It's an invitation to not live by clocks or calendars, but to actually listen to our bodies and to not shame or belittle that all of our bodies have needs and that all of those are worthy of being met. Amen. Amen. What an amazing world we would live in if we right. lived. Because mentally... Our world is falling apart and we don't even see it. I just have one final question, Amy. Um, it, it, I, I don't even recall. I've got so many pages here. I'm not even sure which article this is tied to. But when I read this one paragraph, I wrote what 
in all capital letters in orange magic marker. And I, I, I just, I, I just want you to elaborate on this a little bit. Um, I fully believe you that this was a thing. Um, but it says the so-called ugly laws on the books in the United States until the 1970s mandated that disabled people deemed unsightly must be hidden away. What? Sigh. Yeah. Yeah. These ugly laws were, it basically said that anyone who was disabled or a long list of what were considered ugly were not to be out in public. And now, of course, we don't have formalized ugly laws, but we still practice them by the fact that when I go out in public, I am accosted, I am prayed for, I am assaulted, as was pointed out before. This idea that the public space is only for certain bodies and for what is deemed that kind of perfect body, thin, white, cishet, non-disabled, and... While I think most of us learn about those ugly laws and as you're saying, Olivia, say what? Or maybe some more choice words. <laughs> I think we still really have those in effect in the ethos and mentality of the way people treat my body. Mm-hmm. And it's another layer of supremacy culture. Yeah. Over and over again. And yeah. But what? we're going to heal from is we got to know about it first, which is not your responsibility, but to learn and stop hiding because our country's built on presentation. Yes. You look pretty and the church follows that suit as well. Mm. Yeah. Presentation and performativity. Yes, yes. And if you can, this is why I think crip theory is so helpful because it works at the intersection of queer theory and disability studies. And it tells us that if you can perform heterosexuality and able-bodiedness, you are rewarded by the system. And that's harmful to a number of different groups, but it's also really harmful for who we allow to tell stories and take up space in the public mm-hmm. sphere and what we consider normal. Even our ideas of normalcy are connected to ableism and to queer phobia. Mm. Speaking of queer theory and its intersections, um, there's two things that were re- super impactful for me that that has layers that um, I was able to sit with today um, in prepping for our conversation. Um, But the bringing up this idea of normalcy in, in what we think of a normative relationship, right? You, you do two things. One, you talk about being becoming mindful of the words that we're using in our everyday language to in and I've been doing some of that work now for the last couple of years, and I'm just noticing that it truly it restructures the brain, but it doesn't just restructure the brain. It restructures relationships and how we're into relationships with one another. And so the idea, you kind of mentioned this earlier um, with your husband, but you wrote an essay 
um, t- uh, talking about love and this notion of experiencing intimacy that I just thought was so poignant. Um, but what might um, we need to hear as it relates to our language restructuring the brain and its effect on our relationships and intimacy? That's such a good question. I, in that essay, talk about how when out in public together, my husband will often receive accolades from strangers of what a saint he is for being with a disabled person, as though our entire relationship is designed to entrap him. You know, that (laughs) we actually have much more depth to our partnership and collaboration than (laughs) just forcing him to be with a poor disabled person like me. And I think what that gets wrong, obviously it comments on something that's none of your business, but I think also (laughs) and suggests that it's your right to tell us what you think of our relationship, which it's really not. But also I think what it gets wrong is it doesn't understand what Mia Mingus calls access intimacy, which is this idea of when your access needs are met without complaint or confusion or without trying to belittle them, there's a deepening of intimacy there. And it can be, you know, a sexual intimacy, a loving intimacy, a platonic intimacy. It, it Intimacy happens across all relationships. And the beautiful thing about access intimacy is it values you for being a human being and instead of what you can do or what your access needs are that day. A lot of times people say to me that it must be embarrassing or shameful to have my husband help me get dressed or do things that are considered excessive or extra. And that couldn't be further from the truth in my case. There's a there's a deepening of access intimacy of someone knowing exactly how you like your socks on mm-hmm. and the extra space that you like between your toes and how warm you want the heat pack. And it goes directly against purity culture, which says that that's not how relationships, especially these heterosexual relationships, are supposed to function. That I am here to be... Yeah, submissive and a sexualized object for his pleasure and instead really reverses that by deepening the intimacy between us through everything from helping me get dressed to um, to just understanding my access needs. And if, of course, there are other relationships that I have that in as well, where people don't second guess or try to gaslight what my needs are and people just meet them and we can all have that with each other particularly with something as simple as our language if we're always using if the only time we talk about disability is by calling something undesirable or cheesy as is often the case when people say lame which Mm -hmm. i am lame Mm -hmm. um, then that's Mm going to impact the way that we understand people the way that we understand disabled people not to try to change people's language itself, but to really dig deep 
to what the language means. The language is a repository for our bias. It reflects what we really think of disability. No one ever says, hey, that's lame for something that's cool. You know, I'm only brought up when it's something bad. And same with that was crippling or paralyzing. I have had temporary paralysis. I, I am crippled. And it doesn't feel great to be everyone's go-to explanation for a bad time. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And this, I, one of, one of the things that, again, that I, you know, I encouraged people to kind of sit with what's coming up, but what in, in our ableist structure um, the question that I kind of want to ask, it almost feels unfair. Is like, how do we move through that? Like, cause we're going to fuck it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. I think perfectionism is a tool of white supremacy and ableism because it tells us that we can be perfect. And so even just the first phase of acknowledging we won't be perfect at this, we will mess up and that's okay. It's how we mess up and how we recover and make amends that's important. People say ableist words or ableist phrases all the time. And when I say, oh, hey, that's not cool. I'm lame. Please don't use that word. It's how they recover that is important to me. It's the difference between someone saying, oh, I'm so sorry. You're right. Or, you know, that's on me. My bad. Versus someone saying, oh, it doesn't mean that anymore. Or you're too sensitive. Or take a chill pill. All of which I've been told to my face. I think changing our language, noticing our bias, making space for the times that we've gotten it wrong. All of us have been immersed in this ableist system. And so all of us have room to grow, yes. even disabled people, when it comes to becoming more inclusive with our language and our practices. And especially because disability is such a broad constellation of body minds, many of us have internalized ableism connected to ideas of intelligence or to ideas of worth that we've talked a lot about. And so really just noticing when we have those ideas, not shaming ourselves for having them, but naming it mm. and trying to move beyond those ableist ideas. Mm. Mm. There, There is so much potential um as we embrace like crypt theory you've given me so you've given me more language tonight um especially especially with access intimacy mm -hmm. um there's just so many tender men memories firing off in my brain but also some painful ones in which i did mess up um you know like i like with nurses are you know, we, you would think that nurses know better, but often we can be some of the biggest perpetuators of ableism in making people feel unseen and, and harmed, especially in our medical industrial complex. So I'm experiencing such promise, mm -hmm. um, in this moment that these conversations are, um, 
intersecting and talking, kind of building coalition again um, yeah. in this day and age. I also just want to encourage our listeners and myself and all of us that this is not a place we are to arrive at. This is the journey we're on. There's part, our culture, our perfectionism, our capitalism t- teaches us that it, we accomplish things. And in, in the accomplishment, we stampede people. <laughs> and so just want to encourage you all, like, this isn't an end goal. I don't, learning to be in community is not a checklist. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And it's messy. Barry. And it it takes humility. Lots. And when we first learn about really what we've talked about tonight, which is disability as a culture and disability pride, it can be really strange to people. And I would just say, don't let that stop you from continuing to grow and learn in this area. Mm. Yeah. And it's okay. Like if you're recounting things that are in your mind of like, don't get stuck in the, I should have done this. I should have done this. I should have done this. Oh yeah. The inner critic. (laughs) Yes. You will be in that loop forever because all of us, there's no exception have those moments. Yes. And so don't let that eat you alive, but just learn. Like there's a, going back to the humility, like what you were saying, Amy, the humility will draw us together. What I'm noticing is that this is another invitation to break binary, to break the binary between able body and disabled bodied, um, to, to, to recreate how we, exist on a day-to-day in a way that works for each and every single one of us because when we're honest when we're truly honest none of this shit is working for none of us created for and you may join us one day in being permanently disabled amen through either age or accident wow. And even if you don't permanently, you will certainly have temporary disability. And there's so much when we're thinking about crip theory and that we have to perform that compulsory able body, that compulsory heterosexuality. We see that so much with toxic masculinity and ableism, don't we? Where Mm -hmm. someone throws out their back or has has an off day with their knee, but they can't admit it because that's not, quote, manly. And then they end up hurting themselves more. And all of these systems just reinforce and perpetuate one another. But what if we created a structure and a world where there was no hierarchy of bodies and we didn't have to perform Mm -hmm. heterosexuality or able-bodiedness and both of those ideas were just thrown away and we admitted that every body-mind has needs and has strengths and that those fluctuate over time. Mm. Communities would flourish because people would be seen. Yeah. And we wouldn't be stuck in trying to perform our worth or trying to perform some version of ourselves that doesn't exist. Mm. We end up harming ourselves more. We end up disabling ourselves in trying to perform this myth of the able body. 
Ooh, you better come up on him. Preach now. (laughs) (laughs) We end up harming ourselves. Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? I'm I'm staring at my dad right now in my brain. (laughs) (laughs) My dad is a beautiful 78 year old human and stubborn as all get up. And there's multiple factors that go into that stubbornness. But I, I just think about how so much of um, his identity has been tied to what he's been able to do with his body in his is is hard watching him in his old age as again you know, at some point all of us will experience disability whether permanently or temporarily um, watching him go through this process in a world that does not allow space yeah for that um, for marginalized bodies, Amy, I, I've, I, I forgot who said the quote, um, but the quote that hope is a discipline. Hmm. Um, and for marginalized bodies, I feel like uh, I'm, th- I'm thinking about Austin Channing Brown's book, I'm Still Here, when she talks about how hope dies. Um, what is that relationship to hope? for you like are you hopeful do you have to be hopeful um is hope dying and being reborn for you (laughs) all of the above yeah moment (laughs) moment by moment i think that fluctuates with our access needs i have in getting to talk with folks about the book and in the lead up to the book i have had such hope because there's this inner healing, I think, that's happening for young Amy, who said so many of these things and was dismissed or silenced or told that I was too sensitive or I was causing division or I was letting the devil take a, a foothold. You know, things we've all had before. So there is such hope for the fact that she finally gets to be listened to. And there's hope for other little Amy's and other people who get to catch moments of my story and hopefully then share their story and share what they want to see in terms of disability inclusion and justice and how we can make space for more body minds. So the book is is just my story. I can't represent all disabled people. You know, we're 26% of the US population and 15% of the global population. But I do have glimpses of hope that the book can invite some people at least to consider my story. Mm. I'm, I'm in school for um, spiritual direction right now. And one of the things when we first started, there was this question asked that that came from the concept, I think, by a woman named Luisa Tisa, and I'm probably saying that name wrong, but it was this question of how will we add to the sacred orature mm-hmm. of our time? And I'm just so grateful for the sacred orature that you 
are gifting to the world by um, sharing your experiences, sharing your wisdom. It's such a gift. And may it also be a call to action Yes. Uh, daily that we need as we work to transform our society. So I'm just so grateful for you. Thank you. But it's it's really only through these conversations that that happens. So it's all of us in concert together creating the symphony of equity. Symphony of equity. I love that. Yo, that was our show. Thanks for listening to Permission to Be. Um, thank you to our guests. So if you want more information, head on over to permissiontobepodcast.com to check out the show notes. Get some more information on our guests that we post over there. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, leave a rating. If there's somebody that you want to see on this podcast telling their story, we also want to hear from you. So make sure to connect with us on Facebook and Instagram, Permission to Be Podcast, and we'll see you soon.